Ready? Yep. Hi. I believe the eclipse is another name for the rapture. Lee Cato. And Amazon has issued a recall on my unicorn eclipse glasses. Jeff Moles. And this is Breaking Church. It's a podcast that breaks down the walls of the church and builds up the body of Christ. Okay. We're glad that you've joined us today on Breaking Church for a very important episode. Uh, in the breakdown today, we are going to be exploring Psalm 133, which is a biblical song of unity. And in Breaking Bread, we will be joined by Tyler Coles, who will be discussing what it means to be a unifying force in a world of diversity. And in All Hell Breaks Loose today, Lee and I are going to be looking at the issue of race and the role that it has played in our own lives and how we as God's people are called to act in these times, which I could only describe as God-forsaken times. Yes. So, um, I, we are ready to ban. Let's go. Here we go. And I think you can just say Psalm 133 since it's the whole thing. Psalm 133. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down upon the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord ordained his blessing, life forevermore. So, Jeff, what are your first impressions of this very tiny little psalm? Well, this has always been one of my favorite psalms. And one of the reasons is because when I was younger, I loved hearing about the Dew of Herman because I thought it was like a person, like a guy's name, Herman. And I was like, Herman has some dew? Like, what's, the what's going on there? Herman. The Dew of Herman. Is like, Herman I thought like maybe a meadow he was, or something? He's sweaty or something. Um, I, think, I mean, it's a place. It's a place. Yeah. I don't know if it's a meadow. It's a place, it's a place name. What are your first impressions, Lee? I... I am just having the imagery of oil dripping down somebody's beard, and I don't know if I like it. I know. It's kind of, un, I don't, it doesn't seem comfortable. I don't know if I like it. Good and pleasant. No, I know, I know men put oil on their beards now. Yeah. But it's not dripping off. It yeah. just kind of, gr- it's kind it of kind a, of grosses me out. Yeah. It's kind of a hipster yeah. uh, text. It's very hipster yeah, text. Hipsters in their beard oil. Yeah. So, very hipster text. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's very strange. Yeah, but very beautiful. It is. I love, I love this song. I would hope that Aaron has a, a lovely beard. A very luscious and soft beard. Soft beard. Very oiled. Very up. He's all oiled. Up. Very full. Very full beard. <laughs> all right. Well, this tiny little psalm has a lot to tell us. So yes. let's break it down. Okay. Break down. Psalm 133 is a song of ascents. That's one of those little subtitles that you see as you're flipping through the book of Psalms. When you Remember how they would always teach you where the book of Psalms was? Yeah, the middle of the Bible. It's right in the middle. You yeah. open up to the middle and there's the Psalms. But you see these little subtitles, and this one is called a Psalm of Ascent. And that's been interpreted to mean that this was a psalm of traveling, of... Uh, of pilgrimage to 
um, you know, to another place. So it's a, been interpreted to be a psalm that, like, a family would sing together as they were walking and traveling. And um, that makes a lot of sense, you know. Mm-hmm. Family would have a, a song that celebrated the, the concept of, of unity, of kindred living together in, in unity. Yeah, because it's hard to travel with your family. It is. Sometimes you got to pull out a, you need a, a song. song about unity. You need a song. Yeah, exactly. Together. Yeah, because I don't think they have the license plate game back then or whatever <laughs> yeah. it is people do now. I don't even know what that is. When you're traveling along, you see like how many states you can find. Oh, okay. You know. I say didn't do that in South Carolina. Because <laughs> no. um, there's nobody ever from out of state was who wanted to come there. <laughs> oh, whatever. Um, but this this psalm, you know, is it's a celebration of the concept of unity, and I think unity can be taken in a lot of ways. Sometimes we look at unity as being a like conformity kind mm-hmm. of situation that. And typically, it's a situation where we want everybody to become like us, right? And that's how we're we're unity. If you know, if people would just come be part of us, then we could all be let's united. Let's all be together. Let's, exactly. Let's be one happy family. Let's just be together. And I think that the the unity this is speaking about is, you know, something something that's deeper. There are two images that are used here that um, are being compared to how good and pleasant the experience of unity is. And it's, you know, talking about precious oil on the head, running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, um, running down over the collar of his robes. And, you know, oil is definitely, you know, a symbol of of blessing, the anointing. There's also a ritual for people to put oil on the heads of others as people came into their, their homes, a sign of hospitality, a sign of welcome. So it was certainly about welcoming in people who had been journeying, welcoming in people who who may have been strangers, and and offering them that that experience of hospitality. There's also the image of dew. It is like the dew of Hermon, which again it's a place, not a guy. The dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord ordained His blessing, life forevermore. And these are places that would have been on the way to Jerusalem, you know, place of where the pilgrimage would have would have taken them. And, you know, you think about dew in the middle of the desert, dew is actually what was responsible for offering any source of hydration yeah. in a place where it doesn't rain very often. So dew would have been a very important source of of life. It's something that, you know, for those of us who live in a kind of moderate kind of climate where we have yeah. a lot of rain and it's raining right now. It is raining as, as we, we speak. speak. Um we don't think about that that dew that appears on the grass in the morning, but um, it would be a very important thing. So, you know, how good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It's like a sign of welcome and a sign of blessing upon entering someone's home. It's like the dew that just kind of almost seems like it magically appears in the morning and mm-hmm. and um, takes care of the thirst that the that the land has. Um, so I think you know this is definitely a a psalm that speaks down to us through the through the centuries and um, offers us as a glimpse of what true unity is—not just celebrating people who are are just like us, but you know a, a bigger, more genuine kind of unity that that we do share with all people who are created in God's image—a um, a unity that um, is as big and as the diversity that 
that exists in this world. That's what I'm saying. Breaking bread. Hi everyone, my name is Tyler Coles and I am a native of Roanoke, Virginia, a small city located deep within the Blue Ridge Mountains, yet I currently call Nashville, Tennessee home today. My journey of faith and my involvement in movement work began some 12 years ago as a youth in response to a spiritual experience that I had while attending a small Christian summer camp. This experience propelled me to take upon an active spiritual practice at such a young age within the Disciples of Christ denomination where I chose to be baptized. Yet within a year later, I was called out of the church traditional due to this very same journey and began to explore Wicca and Unitarian Universalism, both of which I call my spiritual homes today and have found myself called to the role of religious leadership within. Combined, these traditions have called me to consider the innate worth and divinity of every person, the role of community in shaping individual identity, and the ways in which God herself shows unending grace towards all of her creation. Upon entering Rono College in 2010, I began to wrestle with these ideas ever more deeply as I became involved in the interfaith movement. What started off as simply wanting to bring together different religious and non-religious communities and increasing religious literacy amongst them gave way to me to consider how my own identity as a queer person of color is both shaped and impacted my religious practice and community. Eventually, I came to understand the roles and means different religious and non-religious communities can have in addressing and ending white supremacy as it impacts people of color, queer and trans identifying folk, and poor and rural communities. Yet within the greater interfaith community, we sometimes hear that unity can only be achieved through love, understanding, and tolerance. This has often led people to believe that to be involved in interfaith work or the greater interfaith movement, that you must check your closely held religious beliefs at the door. Furthermore, many people believe that the greater interfaith movement is one of all talk and no action. In a world that is spiraling due to constant exposure to physical and spiritual trauma, especially in light of the recent events in Charlottesville where communities guided by justice came face to face with adherents of the American religion of white supremacy, we have heard recent calls for love, understanding, and tolerance as a means to overcome bigotry towards fostering greater unity amongst people. Yet I have often found such calls to be shallow, void of meaning, and lacking any direction towards how to actually achieve unity, as calls for unity are often used to scrap cultural identity and experience in response to the discomfort of the mainstream overculture not wanting to face its sins of malpractice and subjugation. I think of this as I watched the news this morning as a congressperson, as he simply suggested that we focus on what unites us as Americans as a means to bring people together in these trying times. Yet discussing our similarities or what may unite us has not, nor let's be honest, nor will probably actually unite us amongst our differing experiences and understandings of life. It is only when we gain the proper tools where we can acknowledge and address our differences while upholding our similarities and shared values that unity might possibly occur. Ultimately, 
Similarity cannot be our end goal for that would be too easy and obvious an answer and lacks any notions of justice or reconciliation in light of systemic and personal sin enacted towards people like my siblings and I. As a person of faith, I think to the traditions and teachings of my childhood tradition of Christianity as how we are called not to simply acknowledge our similarities as a means to unity, but instead we are called to work through our differences as to arrive to the blessed beloved kingdom. Particularly, I think of the story of Babel, Genesis chapter 11 verses 1 through 9. What is often interpreted as a narrative warning against spiritual vanity and a lack of humanity which lead to the confusion of the peoples as detailed within the narrative, I take away a different meaning. One of missed opportunity to know more deeply of each other. What is in fact an act of vanity and misdirected attention was yet turned into an opportunity for God, by God, to create an opportunity for creation to know its difference. That in coming to know one another and our different experiences, languages, and cultural expressions, we might come to know God more completely and fully. Furthermore, I think of the dwellings, Surah, chapter 49, verses 13 within the Holy Quran, which the Muhammad Sarwar translation has it as saying, people, we have created you all male and female and made you tribes and families that you might know each other. The Holy Quran simply and prophetically demonstrates that God intentionally created humanity with diversity. Yet it is in us achieving pluralism that we might fully live into the destiny that God intended for us in knowing one another. Though different, the texts point to the mission of living with and knowing one another admits the difference of creation, not despite the difference. So how do we achieve true unity in days like these? I believe it is in the work of deep solidarity amongst and with one another that unity might occur, not in whitewashing or mansplaining away the differences, but in holding up to the light our uniquenesses and understanding, experiences, and expression guided by love, of course, as it serves as the basis both for how we can be in relationship to one another in non-manipulative and coercive ways, but also in the fact that love is the stuff that we are created from and with. Deep solidarity calls us and enables us to walk alongside one another as a way to achieve the blessed kingdom, the state of truly becoming a unified creation. This past weekend in Charlottesville, Virginia, there was a demonstration of unity, and the kind of unity that was, was demonstrated there was white supremacy. Several groups came together in a long planned demonstration of the removal of a statue of Confederate leader Robert E. Lee, and uh, of course there were counter-protesters there to, to resist that, that white supremacy, and the interaction uh, did become violent, and one of the um, white supremacists did kill uh, one of the counter-protesters uh, in, a, in a terrible act that's been, been tel televised quite widely, uh, and in addition, two of the police officers who were protecting that, that gathering were killed in a helicopter crash. And following that are 
our president and today our vice president have made some remarks that uh, basically validated the side of white supremacy and said that there was wrong on both sides and that there were good people and bad people on both sides and that there was really, they made it into a moral equivalent kind of a situation. And I think this this past weekend's events have really touched a nerve in, in a lot of us. And we wanted to take today's All Hell Breaks Loose segment to, to talk about race and to really tackle how this issue has impacted Lee and I as two white men and how, you know, how we have, how race has impacted our stories up to this point. And, you know, we, we also wanted to kind of discuss what, what's going on and, and where we can go from here. Um, so I'm going to invite Lee to, to kind of start in that process and talk a little bit about what race has, the role that race has played in, in his life. So, and before we go into all this, I think this is, since we are, this segment is about practicing, I think this is a great way to start, especially as white people, mm -hmm. to basically write down what our story is and how, and how we have come to understand what race is and how that has played in our lives. And I think it's a great way to begin to kind of deconstruct how white supremacy and whiteness has infiltrated our lives and how we were. I mean, a lot of us were born into it. And so I think it's a great way to begin that process. But for me, uh, personally, I grew up in rural South Carolina, and which is obviously... Uh, and stereotypically seen as a place where there is a lot of racism. It's in the South. It was the first state to secede from the Union. Um, it had the most slaves per, per well, any state in the, in the South, in the Confederacy. South Carolina had the, the most slaves. And so with that comes a lot of things. I grew up learning about that history. I grew up learning about the Civil War as not the Civil War, but a story, a war that is just simply about aggression. I think we called it the War of Northern Aggression or something. And grew up with that idea that, and those feelings that still surface today, even from like over 200 years ago, the stories of... We lost the Civil War, this and this and this. And so that, that whole history is still in the background, of, especially how I grew up. But I grew up uh, going to public school where um, the classroom was actually very diverse with black and brown people. Um, my high school was 60% black and brown persons, 40% um, white. And as a child, just growing up, knowing people who were black and knowing people who were brown. And as children, we don't really see, we don't really know about the, the ways in which the world is. Children are the most innocent and can see past all that. And so I remember my public school days as being 
I wouldn't say full of, I wouldn't say any kind of negative thing in my elementary school days. We were all just, we all just went to school together, and that's just kind of how it was. But I do remember my grandmother having a lady who helped her clean her house who was black, and her name was Linda, and she would help her do some things around the house, and it was when I was around five, and her and my grandmother were really good friends but had this weird relationship with one another where she was basically the servant who got paid a little bit but was also my grandmother's friend and so growing up with that strange kind of uh, relationship and seeing how that played out even though I was five I do remember it I interacted with Linda a lot and Linda babysat me and all those things and so just even recognizing it probably at that point that there was something some kind of I didn't I, obviously at five I didn't know it was racism but it was something that was different something made Linda different and so growing up in a family specifically in the south yeah a lot of my family used the n-word had racial driven jokes are were pretty prejudiced and biased and had this kind of white supremacist we are better than we are a step above and so growing up and being in that part being in that environment I kind of recognized that it was that something wasn't something wasn't right for people to say that and then recognizing, especially in high school, with a large amount of ind individuals who were black or brown, there was, and this might have been just a South Carolina thing, there were the, these Dixie Outfitter shirts. And they had a Confederate flag on them and, like, random pictures of puppies. Like, there was, like, a Labrador puppy and, a, like, a beagle or something. And then there was a Confederate flag. Or there was like a yellow jasmine flower and the confederate flag and so that was a big controversy when i was in school and then realizing that that those historically based ideals and ideologies were still there and how people got in such an uproar over the fact that they could not wear these shirts I mean, they could wear them uh, for a little bit, and then they couldn't because somebody went to the school district. But in even in seeing that like happen in a school, in a public school district, to where we, they had to fight to get these shirts taken out of the school in a public school district. And then, weirdly, whenever I went to college, got a scholarship to go to a private school in South Carolina where there were hardly anyone of color. There was nobody of color there, hardly. And learning about that and learning that college is a completely different ball game and that how money is strategically kept away from those of kept away from people of color and how financial aid is set up 
how private schools can set up any way they want to, to, to do any kind of discrimination against people and how much it just costs and how much money people had. I think it was when I was in college, I realized that there were people who had shit tons of money and we never had that much money. And so just seeing how, how wealthy people were, these wealthy white people. And I was also in college when Barack Obama got elected and seeing the things people were saying and being in South Carolina at that time, awful stories of lynchings, people making a dummy and hanging a dummy that looks like Barack Obama and talking about how the world's going to come to an end, all this kind of stuff during that time, and I am at this, quote, prestigious college, was something that also made an impact on me in realizing that that race in America has just never been dealt with. I think the election of Barack Obama, and uh, and now we're going into the aftermath of that with this the past election, but after he was elected, it was, it was mind-boggling to see what people were saying about him and what they would do and counting how many days he would last in office before somebody killed him and things of that. Like, going through that, you slowly realize that, that America never dealt with any repercussions from slavery never dealt with any repercussions of how the entire economy of America was built, and that was on the back of black and brown people. And just how all of that bubbled up in that four years I was at PC. And then moving here to Nashville, which is probably the best thing I ever did, and going to Vanderbilt and meeting black and brown people who do racial justice work and who challenge white people every day and who who are also very graceful in how they do it but are also very concerned and I think and I'm and I think Martin Luther King even said it very concerned for white people's souls and I am also concerned for that but but learning more and reading more about how white supremacy is deep into all forms of life and how it's also in every form of a white person. I think if you're white, you're not, you're just not exempt from anything. You can be a gay white person and just because you're gay, I don't think that exempts you from being or, or giving in to white supremacy or perpetuating white supremacy or being a racist or not being or not standing up for black and brown people. I don't think anything exempts you from doing that. And so just learning and being here in Nashville has given me this, this drive to, to continue to figure out how we can deconstruct and basically try to end white supremacy and how I can be as a 
theologian and future minister how to help people realize that it's a sin and this is not of God in any kind of way or how to be direct about it and how to not beat around the bush when it comes to it because it is life and death. It is a life and death situation now and it has always been. It's just never, for some reason, it has never been thought of as that and so I've always had some feeling that something was wrong as a child but but that when you're a child you just never really you just really never know what it is but but as you grow and you see it and you also participate in it and I'm not saying I didn't participate in it because I did but you you just slowly realize that it was it was there when you were a child too so and I think this this type of telling your story it's it's a good way to to see that too. Mm-hmm. Is it my turn? It's your turn. So I grew up in Indiana, which is part of the North, and barely part of the North, but um, a place where I think we always have kind of had we had the attitude of, well, everything's worse in the South, and they're racist in the South, and they had slaves in the South, and we didn't do that up here, and we're, you know, kind of a attitude of superiority to to our white friends in the in the south because you know we didn't secede from the united states over slavery and things like that but then you know there were also these realities that emerged as i got older that you know the indiana was one of is one of the most active places for the clan that you know there are all these awful things that have been been part of indiana's history as well but that that's not what we what we learned about. I think we we definitely learned that that we were from a place that was a little bit more advanced and more refined as far as race relations went. Um, and I think, you know, really the bottom line of how I was taught to think about race was to not think about it. Um, to be, you know, being colorblind was the ultimate goal. Um, you know, a society where we, that quote from Dr. King that white people love to quote about judging people on the content of their character, not on the color of their skin, was really, you know, that was kind of the moral standard. Um, I did have, uh, in elementary school, had a couple of um, black teachers. My, my elementary school principal was black. Um, so it was certainly a, a more integrated environment, and I'm very thankful that I had those experiences. Had several black classmates. Um, the town I grew up in is a more blue-collar, working-class uh, kind of an area. But, you know, there was was definitely some division there. And I remember, you know, recognizing that division, you know, asking those questions of myself of like, well, why, why do all the black kids sit together at lunch? And, you know, why, you know, and almost blaming them in my mind for, you know, why, well, why do they just stick to one another? They're not hanging out with with the rest of us, but, you know, at the same time, I was hanging out with white kids, so, um, you know, that, that question, looking back on it, didn't make a lot of sense. Um, you know, my family, there was definitely some complexity there. I was taught to respect everyone and to, um, 
be a person that looked past race, but you know, it was also an environment where there are are some members of my family who would tell racist jokes, and that was just kind of part of the the culture of our family. And you know, I never said anything about it. You know, I would either kind of laugh along or just kind of disappear, but certainly not um, you know anything that would would resist against that. I think I had an understanding that racism was a a quality in bad people. You know, it's it's something that, um, well, not just in bad people, because there were certainly people that I knew and loved who I recognized had some racism in them. Um, but I definitely didn't understand it as a larger thing, or certainly not something that I was I was part of. Um, you know, I think I thought that it was something that had been overcome. We we would definitely celebrate Black History Month every February, and um, in those 28 days would learn about important figures in black history. And mm-hmm. But that narrative never really got tied to anything else. We would just kind of learn facts, learn about individuals, um, about how George Washington Carver had a billion uses for the peanut, things like that. But we never really learned about the larger narrative about slavery and about, um, you know, that black people weren't native to this this area and the fact that white people also are not native to this area was never never really discussed. Um, you know, I grew up hearing that Asian Americans, that ja- the Japanese Americans were um, imprisoned during World War II because for just reasons, you know, that that was one of the things that, that that was okay and it was something, you know, it wasn't ideal but it's something that we had to do to to take care of ourselves and you know, it was just things like that that I, I just sort of took for granted. Um, but I certainly did not recognize my own complicity, my own privilege, you know, the ways that my own life benefited from being a white person, whether it was in school or in thinking ahead to a career, about the opportunities that I was given that, that other people might not have been. Um, so, you know, I think there were some important things as I got older. Um, you know, certainly when I went to college, you know, some of the things that I started to learn about were, were important. I remember I took a class that was a, a literature class, but it was centered around the theme of violence. And one of the things we learned about was lynching. And, I mean, it's sort of one of those things that I knew had happened, but I didn't know what it was like. And I certainly did not know how far into the 20th century and mm-hmm. even the present that lynching was a, a very prevalent part of of our culture and one of the things that really impacted me was being shown this photograph of a lynching in Marion, Indiana and I knew in my mind that Marion is a place where some of my family had lived and there was this huge crowd of white people standing under this tree just like hundreds and hundreds of people having picnics and just out enjoying themselves and there in the middle of this picture hanging from the tree is this black person. And seeing that and seeing how people were just accepting that as part of their, it was just a reason to come out and have a picnic. Mm -hmm. And knowing that that was a place where my own family could have been, you know, they were, they could definitely have been complicit in that, that very direct act. That really made an impact on me. I remember looking through an old family 
it was like a memorial book from when a great great grandparent had had died uh, in the early 20th century, and there were little cards of you know that were attached to bouquets of flowers that had been given, and one of the cards said from the ladies of the Ku Klux Klan. That was one of the flowers that had been sent, and I was I was like interesting you know that 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 made an impact again that affected my family and um that definitely could admit that part of my family was was part of the clan then when i moved to to nashville and started my work with uh, people who are experiencing homelessness you know i really saw firsthand the legacy of a racist system where you know only 12 percent of the United States is black, but here 50% of the people that we were serving in homeless services were black. And, you know, there were these people who um, were Latino and were, um, had had various levels of, you know, legal status and with their immigration and the, the struggles that they all faced and how they also just kind of disappeared um, several years ago. And you know, thinking about where what what probably happened to them, and seeing some of the attitudes that even among people who are oppressed because of their circumstance of homelessness, you know, seeing white people come in and literally walking up to me and saying, "I mean, clearly I don't belong here. I'm not like the rest of these people." And I'm like, "Well, but you're in the circumstance that we." Mm -hmm. <laughs> people that we serve and seeing myself in a situation where I was in this p position of power over this you know group of African American people who were much older than me it just it did not sit well with me and, and really changed my perspective and then you know the election of Barack Obama I was in a state of euphoria <laughs> and that, that was like we've reached the promised land and all this but then um Social media became a thing, and everybody started carrying around cameras in their pockets. And suddenly, in the last few years, we have all these instances that have happened, and we have literally seen with our own eyes the realities of life for non-white people in the United States. And you know, I'm thankful that we have this technology that's allowing us to bear witness, because mm. I think bearing witness is what what creates change. And, you know, I think it's it's almost like a conversion experience that you go through when you see these things. Or I hope most people have a conversion experience when they see these things, whether it's, you know, Trayvon Martin or Michael Brown or um, the incident this past weekend where the with the car driving into the crowd, just to see such raw violence and the way that we treat one another is is just disturbing and I think calls us to action. I think my weakness is that I want to be seen as a good white person. Mm -hmm. And so I make sure that I always post the right things on Facebook or say the right things. And I'm, I'm sometimes more concerned about appearing as right, right. than actually following through and acting. So. You know, those those are some of the experiences that I've had, and you know, I'm I'm thankful for that journey. But it's also a disturbing journey mm. to think about all those things and to um, think about the ways that 
my lack of action, my lack of understanding um, plays into that the whole system of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. So I think you know the question now is where do we go from here? We are in a you know we're not in a situation that's worse than it has been. Right. You know if I think a lot of us who are white are suddenly like things are awful. How did they get this way? Why are they so much worse now than they have been? been, And they've always been this way. Yeah, people of color are like, hello, what have we been saying for all these years? And you didn't take us seriously. Right. And I I think that the idea of social media now, it is seeing like the awful things that are happening, but it's also seeing how, um, how America hasn't changed. Oh, yeah. It's, to the where we had this narrative that oh we are we're past that we, we elected have, our we first African American president like we're past that and we have seen so much on social media that that is just not the case right if anything this past election has just uncovered what has not ever been dealt with or what has still been there for these amount of years Mm-hmm. Um, and it all stems back from, and it all stems to during the time of slavery and when emancipation happened. Nobody ever, we never, the nation never dealt with the repercussions of it. And in fact, it just manifested itself in different ways. Right, we to put keep a different face on it. Yep. And that's the reason why it has never been. This is why this narrative of we need to we need to come together. This country needs to come together. It's like how do you do that when this country has in, has put in place laws that are just another manifestation of slavery, where freedom is where people are not free, where people are not getting any kind of relief or or there is no dealing with what this country has done. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just all manifested itself in these ways that it's the same thing. I mean, in my daily work, I work with lots of adults who are never taught to read. Mm-hmm. I work with a lot of people who, um, you know, weren't expected as a, you know the culture didn't want them to get too educated. Um, I work with a lot of people who have been incarcerated for things that most white people would not get incarcerated for and they're still you know they've done their time but they are still paying the price because they can't get housing they can't get jobs and they they lose hope um and it's you look at our you know just our prison population and how huge it is and how we make money mm-hmm. off of that you know this whole for-profit prison industry that we have how we make money off of immigration enforcement and how we've turned that into a big business mm-hmm. is you know it's just an indictment of of all of us you know right. there's none of us that can escape yeah from that we all pay pay for it we pay right. our taxes and we we profit from it yeah um but it's, you know, we're not, we're making sure that the shackles are still on, on people. Right. Yeah. 
And then the question is, like, yeah, we ask the question, what do we do? And that question is, is always asked when things like this happen. And white people lose their minds. It's like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And it's like, the first thing you need to do is ask yourself why you're surprised. Why are you, why are you surprised that this happened? And why did it take this to get you mm-hmm. doing something? Um, and, and to start with yourself. I think it's not, yeah, we need to do something. Something needs to happen. But it's also none of us are exempt from it. And none of us can do anything until we recognize it in ourselves mm-hmm. that no matter who we are, we are white people who are perpetuating the system in some way. I went to a private institution, a college, from a lower income family where my, right, like right down the road was a black family who made the same amount of money I did. How did I get, how did I get the money that I got? Like, why is that happening? Like, why did... Like, why did any of that happen? It's like recognizing that the fact that you're white, that's how you got places. Mm-hmm. That's how... And, write, and like, figuring those things out, looking at your story, writing it down, and then just, like, just like dealing with that first. Mm-hmm. And actually telling yourself, and not beating around the bush, I was telling Jeff that I'm so tired of people just saying, oh, we denounce bigotry and hatred and violence. Mm-hmm. It's like, I want somebody to be specific and say, we, there is no place for white supremacy in this country. But they can't say it because it is in everything that this country has done. And if you say, I denounce white supremacy, you're basically saying, I am denouncing America. So it's like, when can we get somebody to say that? And then I think that's the most practical thing we can do is to, to tell our own story. What, are the, what is our privilege? What have we as white people, or you as a white person, if you're a white person listening, what, what, are, what are the privileges that you've had in your life? Mm-hmm. So here's a little homework, Breaking yeah. Church listeners. Lee and I have looked at our stories and told a little bit about those today. So we would invite you to think about your own story and to write it down, whether you're a person who has had many of the privileges that we've had as white people or whether you're a person who has struggled with you know, the oppressive experience of being a person of color in this world. Because I think sharing these stories is a step toward, toward healing. And, you know, if, if there's anything we need, it's, it's a little bit of healing and reconciliation and justice, um, not just a unity, you know, as we talked about in, in our scripture study today, a unity that invites us to be like, like the dominant culture, but a unity as family, as family that's, that's traveling on this pilgrimage of life together and as a family that right now is treating some of its members as 
second, third, and fourth class citizens, and recognizing that 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 is a sinful state, and that we need to call that out, and and tell the stories so that we can we can move forward, because it, it's time to move forward. It's not time to sit and talk about it anymore. It's mm-hmm. time to 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 take action and 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 create justice. Yeah. People are dying. They are. Well, it's time to break up, but the good news is we can get back together again next week. Visit our website at breakingchurch.com. There you'll find links to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to comment, share your thoughts, and don't forget to subscribe to Breaking Church on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And if you've made it this far, leave us a review. But only good reviews, please. Only good ones. So go out and denounce white supremacy, whether it be that of your own or others. And don't settle for a false unity where fellow members of our human family are subject to oppression and death. Because, why Jeff? Because ain't Ain't nobody nobody got got time time for that that shit. shit. Go in peace. Go in peace.